Welcome to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. My name is Andrea Wilson-Woods, and I'm the CEO and co-founder of Cancer U. Join me each week as I interview cancer patients, caregivers, survivors, and providers about their cancer journeys. You're listening to Cancer Youth Thrivers, where real people share true stories. Carly is a stage one papillary thyroid cancer survivor. She is passionate about creating better health outcomes for cancer patients through the fields of health literacy, patient education, and cancer research. Carly, thank you so much for coming back. This is the second time we're trying this. Last time we had some power issues, but thank you for coming back again and sharing your story. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to share it. Yeah, me too. So you are by far one of the younger people we have had, and I would really like people to understand what your journey has been. So can you take us back to the beginning? So I was diagnosed when I was 27. I'm 30 now. And so I fall into that age range, the age range of adolescent and young adult uh, survivors. Um, and there aren't that many of us. Um, I think it's growing, but you find the majority of patients in the childhood range or in the older range. And so it's very hard for people my age to relate to other people when they talk about their own cancer journey. I was diagnosed when I was four months into graduate school. I was doing that online and I was also working full time, but I didn't have any symptoms. And so when I uh, received the diagnosis, um, I didn't really make anything of it. Um, I just thought that this is the way my life is going to go from now on, and I kind of just accepted it. So take us back to like, how was that diagnosis even made? Who made it? Um, you said you didn't have symptoms, so how, how did that even happen? Sure, so um, one of the things that I advocate for now because I'm a survivor is uh, an annual physical. And so um, when I had a physical um, that year, so 2016, when I had my physical that year, uh, my doctor felt a lump in my throat, um, and he said you should get that checked out. And so I went to an I went for an ultrasound, and they did an ultrasound of my entire neck, not just where the lump was found. Um, and they said we see that, which was like around up here, um, but then the thyroid cancer, which is more down here that's where they found my tumor. And so the, tu the thyroid is made up of two lobes, the left side and the right side. And so my tumor was on the right side. Um, and so that's, where, that's when they found that. And so they said from here, you would have to see a surgeon um, and that would be the best, uh, the best treatment option going forward. Because I think thyroid cancer, at least my variant, uh, papillary is pretty straightforward where you receive uh, surgery and then sometimes radiation. It's more of the the medullary type um, that has the, I guess the genetic uh, the genetic variant to it um, that would have the more intensive treatment, including chemotherapy. Um, and so I was working at a hospital at the time. 
And I went to my doctors and I said, who is the best surgeon that you know for uh, thyroid removal? Um, and they gave me the name and um, I, you know, I did my research on him and I called, I called their office and they said, well, he's available, he's taking patients, but um, this was in January. So I was diagnosed the first week of January, 2017. And Happy so, New Year, right? I know. It was <laughs> a great, great thing. And so they said he, his first appointment is not until May. And I said, well, I work for you guys. I work for the system. Is there any way that you can like push me through a little bit sooner? And they told me that was me seeing him sooner. Um, and so in the meantime, I did get a second opinion, which I do think is very important. I didn't think it was important at the time because I knew that the surgeon that I would be seeing in May is the one who I wanted to do my surgery. But I do think it is important to have a second opinion, especially when there are a range of treatment options available for you. And you don't want to have a doctor say, this is the only treatment that's available if you know, in fact, that there are many. Um, and so I did get a second opinion. He told me I would have surgery. When it came time to see my my surgeon who was going to do my actual surgery, he told me the same thing. Um, so because my tumor was on my right side, I had one of two choices, which was also very important so for a doctor to give you choices if there are, if there are choices. Sometimes there are not. Um, but with the thyroid, you can live with half of it in your body and you'll be okay. If you have a, the whole thing removed, then that's where you'll that's where you'll need a supplement. And so, I had I did have the option to have the whole thing removed, um, even though the tumor was just on the right side. Um, but I just wanted to make my quality of life as best as I could, um, knowing that I now have this diagnosis. Um, and so I opted to only remove the right side. Interesting. So, okay. Yeah, that was done in May of 2017. And so, um, and then two days after my surgery, I had come home from the hospital. My surgeon called me and he said, uh, we did pathology on your lymph nodes. And, um, and that means that they're looking for uh, cancer in your lymph nodes. So that means if there was, then the, it means that the thyroid cancer has metastasized um, meaning it has spread to lymph nodes or it has spread to other places in the body. My surgeon was calling to tell me that it had metastasized. They yeah. just didn't know it at the time of surgery. And so he said, your next, um, your next treatment round is going to be another surgery. Okay. We have to remove the other half. Okay. Because... Um, we didn't see, you know, on the ultrasound, we didn't see any additional tumor, but tumors can be very small. Um, so they took out the other half. And um, even though I don't have any remaining thyroid, that doesn't mean that the surgeon got everything. The next treatment round was a form of oral radiation called radioactive iodine therapy. 
and um, it's a whole process, of course, um, but it's not where I undergo a scan and I get radiation that way. It's a pill that, that is radioactive and has radioactive material in it, and so I take that by mouth, and then the, the, the radioactivity goes throughout my entire body. I'm only smiling because I've been through this, and so we'll talk about that. But yeah, it's yeah. it's a pill, guys. <laughs> it's a radioactive pill. So, yeah. Um, so yeah. So so what was? Um, I want to go back a little bit so people understand because you're giving some great advice, which we'll put in the show notes. Um, you said you did some research on yeah. your doctor. Um, yeah. Well, you also said second opinion, so important. How did you do that research, number one? And also, what was the time gap between that first and second surgery? Um, on my doctor, I would say I was very lucky in that I worked at a hospital and I knew that the doctors who whom I worked with knew the best surgeon for me. Um, if I was not in that situation, um, I generally um, term turn to websites such as ZocDoc or Health Grades and read the ratings and reviews. Um, it can also be helpful to talk to other family members or friends to see if they have any recommendations, especially if it's a specialist. Primary care, I think, is a lot easier to change than specialty care just because of the detail that is uh, entailed within each appointment. So I think, I think that would be the, the way that I would have done that. The time between my first and second surgery was about three months. So I had my second surgery in August. It was either July or August. I was kind of surprised at first because when my surgeon had called me, I said, well, I just left the hospital two days ago. Do you need me to come back right now? And he said, well, no, we want you to heal first because I had just had this large incision in my neck and he wanted me to heal. And so um, about three months um, is what it took for, for me to heal. And then he went back in through the same incision and removed the other half. So it wasn't too much of a time gap. And then my, my uh, oral surgery, um, I could do that at any time, but it was, of course, best sooner rather than later. And so I did that in the end of October, early November of that same year. So it was kind of back to back to back uh, in terms of all of my treatments that year. Um, and then, yes, being in grad school and also working at the same time, um, it was, it was hard, but it was easier than I thought because of me having no symptoms, which is, uh, it's, it's an aspect of thyroid cancer that I'm grateful for, but I think it's also one that is taken advantage of because, uh, because our prognosis is so high and so great um, people call it the good cancer. Mm. And um, it's something that drives me crazy because there is no such thing. And you, I think I only learned that after I became, I guess, a survivor um, when my treatment was over. Um, 
And so I, uh, I actually continued school and working. So I worked, I still worked my five days a week, my 40 hours a week. Um, and then my graduate school program, because it was online, I was able to manage that fairly well. I think had I been in school in a physical classroom on a college campus, it would have been much more difficult to try and um, go around all of my surgeries and my oral radiation. Um, but because I was online, I had a little bit more flexibility. Um, so that I think made it a little bit easier. Um, and so I was very grateful for that. Um, I did have to email professors and tell them um, I was diagnosed with this. Um, I might need some extensions on some assignments. And so I don't think that's anything any student thinks that they'll have to do. And so that was kind of hard for me, um, but they were very accommodating. Why was uh, it hard for you? Why? I think it's I think it's hard to uh, to talk about a diagnosis, especially when it's so fresh. I I didn't want to be considered. I don't mean this in a condescending way, but a spe uh, a person with special needs. Mm -hmm. um, I wanted to be treated, and I still want to be treated as a person. I do let my diagnosis define me, and we can talk about that. Um, later, um, but I also wanted to be seen as a normal person, a normal student who could take care of herself. Um, I did not want to be seen as a burden, and that's something I still struggle with daily. How much of work in grad school was a distraction for you? I would say it was a distraction. Um, with, uh, with school, I think it I think it was because it kept my mind going and it kept my mind in other places. Um, with work, I would say it was a distraction, but not so much because of the field that I was working in. And so I worked in primary care. A couple of the patients that I saw were cancer patients. And so it was kind of a reminder to me, um, but not in a bad way. It it kind of gave me a bond that I could share with them. And so I think that was, that was really special. And um, it, it, I guess it kind of made me view patients uh, in a different, in a different way, especially cancer patients because of how much they go through. I think like the non-cancer survivor population recognizes how much we go through, but it's, one thing to have empathy and then another thing to go through it. Oh, absolutely. Where does the desire to not be a burden and from my interpretation to be so independent, where does that come from? I would probably say childhood. Um, I've just been a very independent person um, my entire life. I am, I will say that I am stubborn. I don't, I don't really like asking people for help. And that's something that I, I struggle with. And so when I was diagnosed, it kind of put me in this position where I really did need to ask for help and I needed to be okay with it. Um, 
And that's still something I struggle with because of, even though, you know, I'm done with treatment, uh, the cancer journey does not end until I die. Um, it's just like the mental and emotional and the physical labor that go, that encompasses this journey that does not end. Um, plus I could relapse at any time. So I just, I don't want to put pressure on other people to feel like they need to uh, treat me a special way or they need to take care of me in a certain manner. I think that's great, but it's something that I have a hard time accepting. Um, I can see that. Um, are you, are you the oldest? Yes. Okay. <laughs> ding, 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 ding. <laughs> um, well, I, I want to tell you like how I can relate. I am, I've never had cancer, not a cancer survivor in, in that respect. And, and you know the story with my sister, but, um, but when I was 23, I at that point had custody of my sister. She was nine and, um, and I just turned 23 and I started having all the symptoms of thyroid disease, but didn't know it. Like I just thought mentally I was going a little crazy. Um, it, you know, it was, a, a particularly cold winter in LA and usually cold and wet and rainy and I would be wearing shorts and, mm -hmm. and I was always hot and that's not who I was at that time at all. I was typically really cold and I was losing weight, but, but still kind of bloated and, um, my eyes were getting kind of buggy and I actually went on this game show, this nationally syndicated game show. And my aunt called me and my, my aunt never called me. She sees me on this game show and I was white as a ghost. I mean, like oh, just no. so pale. And she sees me and this was December now of 95. And she said, you have a thyroid disease. You've got to go to the doctor now. She goes, I can see the goiter. And, and so she could see this, you know, huge, basically it's, you know, bump. I don't know how else to describe it in your throat. Mm -hmm. And I, and I told her, I said, Oh, my neck's just getting fat, you know, <laughs> because my weight was so displaced all over my body. It was so weird. Mm -hmm. Um, and I didn't have health insurance, okay. so I didn't do anything about it. And then in January of 96, I mean, it just kept getting worse. And mm -hmm. there was a time where I finally couldn't keep down food. Either I was throwing it up or it was going out the other way with diarrhea. And it got so severe over a three-day period that my best friend said, okay, you have got to go to urgent care, mm -hmm. ER, something. Yeah. And um, I finally said, okay. And also during this time, I was sleeping about two hours a night. And okay. I've always had difficulty sleeping, but this was mm -hmm. the extreme. I mean, I just couldn't sleep at all. Mm -hmm. And um, so my friend, we take my sister to school and my friend takes me to the ER, um, to LA County Hospital. The average wait at that time in the ER was eight hours. Oh, wow. And after, yeah, um, they took my vitals after we had been there two hours. And my lying down pulse was 150 beats per minute. Oh, boy. And they told my friend, they said, we're admitting her now. Yeah. And, and of course, I didn't know a lot of this till later, but um, when she had the nurse and the doctor and said, you know, well, is she going to be okay? And they said, well, we're just going to make sure she lives through the night. That's all we're going to focus on right now. Mm -hmm. um, because they didn't know what it was. And, mm -hmm. and then the next morning, this, it's a teaching hospital, right? Okay. This team of doctors comes with the med students. <laughs> 
And the doctor looks at me and he says, look, based on your blood work, you know, this, this, and that, he goes, you either have thyroid disease or diabetes and they're both genetic. Which one runs in your family? And I was like, and I thought about my aunt and mm -hmm. my first cousin, her daughter had had her thyroid removed when she was 16. Okay. It runs very young in my family. And I was like, oh, thyroid disease. He goes, okay. And uh, initially, and I did, I had Graves disease, hyperthyroidism. Mm -hmm. And initially they were going to do surgery and they opted not to. And I think it was because my heart was so bad. So the entire goal was to get my heart under a hundred beats per minute. And then they were going to figure it out. And so ultimately I had the same radiation um, three or four months later. And I remember um, they told me, they said, well, you cannot be around children or food, other people's food for three days. Mm -hmm. And at that time, of course, I was raising my sister. I was teaching other children <laughs> and I was waitressing. <laughs> And so I was like, you guys are going to take my livelihood away from me. Okay. <laughs> Jeez. Um, but I remember, I mean, and, and you, know, Carly's right. It is crazy. It's this pill. It's like a horse pill. It's huge. But I remember it was like inside of a capsule, inside of a thing, inside of, it was like the nesting dolls, you know, and yeah. the nurse who handed it to me was, you know, all, you know, scrubbed up and, you know, you know, like handing me this big bottle of poison and, and then it's like, okay, good luck. Go home. Yep. <laughs> Oh, that's crazy. Um, and, and I'm guessing, I mean, you've, you've been on thyroid replacement hormone since. I have. Yes. You have to tell me, um, and, and, and tell people, um, what that has been like, because, and, and why don't you, cause I know, but why don't you explain what the thyroid's function is in the body? Because I don't think most people know. You know what? I didn't even know what a thyroid was until they told me it was trying to kill me. <laughs> Um, the thyroid is a, a butterfly-shaped gland that's located in your neck about right here. Yeah. It controls so many functions. So um, your metabolism, your temperature, like your body temperature, um, your mood, like any function that you can think of that your body does, your thyroid has a part in it. And um, now that I don't have it, um, I, I do take a supplement, um, that is a thyroid, uh, it's a thyroid hormone. And so and it's in the form of a pill and there are a lot of different, um, brands. I take a brand called levothyroxine, um, and the dosage is based on a couple of different numbers that are recognized in the blood. So you have, the T3 and the T4, which are the hormones that are made by the thyroid. And then you have the thyroid globulin, which is a tumor marker. And so as a result of me not having a thyroid, um, I do get scans and I do get blood work. And so scans are done once a year. And so what they do is they, I go to, I have an ultrasound and they do an ultrasound of my neck to make sure um, nothing has returned. Um, and then blood work, um, it starts off usually every three months and then moves to every six. And then eventually, um, I think it moves to every year. I've just moved to every six. Um, and so what they're looking for is the 
the T3 and the T4, which helps determine the dose of the thyroid hormone pill that you're on. And then the thyroglobulin is, like I said, it's a tumor marker. We want that number to be at zero. That means that there are no remaining thyroid cells in your body. Some people do not get to that. I have not gotten to that, which means there are thyroid cells remaining in my body. They do not know if they are cancer or not, and so that is something I will never know, um, which is uh, another thing. Um, but uh, it's, it is very low to zero, um, and it is stable, um, so I am considered in remission. However, I have to be checked. At, uh, this is why I'm checked every six months to every year to make sure that this number does not go up. If the number does go up, it means that the cancer might be back. And so what happens then is I go and get a whole body scan and I haven't experienced that yet. So we'll see what happens. Um, but those are, those are the types of blood work that would be done, um, the scans that would be done, what your doctor is looking for, um, things like that. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I don't have to have the scans, but the blood work, yes. And, and as you go through different periods in your life and as your hormones change, um, everything will change again. And, and yeah, and I'm really glad you explained it so beautifully. And I, and I didn't know either, by the way, <laughs> I had no idea. Um, I mean, I knew that my you know, cousin had her thyroid removed, but I did not know um, just what a huge impact the thyroid plays um, on someone's body. And it took a few years for my thyroid to stabilize. Now it's, it's pretty stable, but I can usually tell if it's out of whack, you know, or something. During all of that, from the moment you were diagnosed till when you feel like you were in remission, what was your worst moment? Um, I think my worst moment was when uh, my doctor called me and told me that uh, my cancer had metastasized and that uh, my treatment was not over. I, I remember being on the phone with him and I said, um, he, was, he was like, you know, I'm so sorry, this is happening. And I told him that it was okay. And oh. I, don't, I don't know where that came from. <laughs> I think I was just trying to, um, to calm myself down. Um, and he was like, you know what, it's, it's really not. And so I, I think he was trying to share that moment of, that moment of empathy with me and not trying to sugarcoat it and be like, you know what it is, be, is it is going to be okay. I mean, it is, but at the same time, you know, this is, this is not okay. Right. Um, and I just, I remember going to my parents and telling them, uh, this isn't over. I have to go back. I don't know when this is going to end. I'm just getting chills, just so you know. Um, oh, goodness. Um, and you're young enough to be my daughter, so I can only imagine how your parents felt. Um, where were your parents during this time in terms of, like, were they close to you? Were they driving distance? Were they able to help you? I was saying I was living with them at the time, and this says, this was two days after my surgery. So I had an ice pack on my neck. I was laying in bed, and the doctor had called my cell phone, which I had next to me, and that's when I got that phone call. Oh, God. 
Yeah. What was your best moment? Um, my best moment? Um, well, I would say, I don't know if I would consider this a best moment, but when I had my follow-up scan a year after my diagnosis, so this would have been in 2018, um, the radiologist uh, uttered the words cancer-free. Um, and I, I remember that so so vividly because i walked i walked out of there i almost fell to my knees um but at the same time i my blood work shows otherwise it might it might be completely different um and so not i i think that is a bittersweet moment because uh it's positive as far as the scan goes but it could be a negative as far as the blood work goes and I really try and always be positive, but, but that is something that I cannot shake. Um, the, I would say the, the biggest, the biggest moment for me was when I graduated uh, with my master's degree uh, last year. Um, I remember walking to the stage and I almost cried because I, I knew uh, what I wanted to do with my degree. I had made it so far uh, with a cancer diagnosis and I, I had made it. Share with us, what was the degree? So I have a master's in health communication from Boston University. And I think this gets us right into the next question. So how do you look at your life differently now um, than before you had cancer? When I went into my degree program, um, I didn't really know what I wanted to do with it. But as I went through all of my classes, I was able to really find the, the work, the coursework that I really resonated with. Um, and so um, I really enjoyed research. I really enjoyed health literacy. I really enjoyed educating patients in a way that they understand. Um, and so I took it I took all of this knowledge and was able to view it from the aspect of both a health communicator and as a cancer patient. Um, and so uh, when I graduated and what I want to do now is I want to um, enhance health literacy, meaning I want to make uh, the scientific jargon that we see every day and make it into lay friendly language that patients can understand. I want to educate patients um, on how to be advocates for themselves. Um, and then I also, I want to advance research in, in the cancer community, uh, whether that be through uh, enhancing patient education or health literacy. Um, and this is all in the context of cancer patients because as much as I have experienced, um, including the ups and downs, I know that it is uh, each journey is completely different. No, no one diagnosis is the same. And so, and everybody advocates for themselves in a different way, but you have to have that knowledge um, and you have to ha have that knowledge of what you of what you've been through and what you're going and um, and what you're going through um, in order to make sense of it to other people, and so that's what I want to do. That's I mean I think 
I think cancer has given me my life's purpose and I'm very grateful for that. Um, it has changed my life completely uh, in more ways than one. And I think, I think any cancer patient can say that because a diagnosis does change your life. Um, but I think it changed my life in a way that it gave it its meaning. Um, and I do not take that for granted. Oh God, that's amazing. That's, that's amazing. Um, knowing that, knowing, knowing that your purpose now, um, and you were in grad school. I mean, so you were educated, um, but like me, you didn't know what the thyroid did. <laughs> what is the one thing that you wish you had known at the very beginning of your cancer journey? You know what? Um, I would say uh, have a caregiver. Um, my, my mother was my caregiver, um, through, through everything. And she still continues to be, um, she was there for every appointment. Um, and the reason I say, uh, have a caregiver is because you have a second set of ears. You have a second set of eyes that, um, can help you go through this because, uh, when you're in that appointment, a lot of times you're going to have questions and if you don't write them down, you're going to forget them. And so having that person with you, um, to make sure, you know, you're asking what you need to ask, you're getting that knowledge that you need, um, is so important. Um, and I would say that having a caregiver that, I would say if they're related to you, it would be the, it would be best because um, you share that same language, you share you share the same culture, you might share the same values, and that is those are all things that doctors need to take into account when they're setting up a treatment plan. And a lot of doctors fail to do that; they don't think about the patient's quality of life or how they will move forward um, after treatment is completed. Um, if you, if they speak a different language, if they have a different cultural value than from the doctor, they're not going to know that until you really get to know one another. And it's building that relationship with the doctor and the caregiver that makes the, it makes the journey so much more, so much easier. It makes it more meaningful. Um, and I think, I do think the quality of life does enhance when, when you do that for both for the patient and the caregiver and shout out to caregivers because you just, you do not know how much they do until you're placed in that role. Oh, I love that same language, same values, same culture. And I think you're right. I think a lot of doctors just don't take that into consideration. Um, and as a caregiver, we appreciate the, the shout out. <laughs> I, I know for, for me and my sister, um, I found out later that everyone loved her and most people hated me. Oh, and that's okay. No. <laughs> that's okay. Cause I was out there fighting for her and what she wanted and speaking for her and, and that's totally okay. You know, I did not care. They didn't need to like me. Um, it wasn't, it wasn't about, you know, a popularity contest. Um, you can only do one thing to improve healthcare in the U S only one thing. What would it be and why? 
Oh, I already know it. Um, and it's something that I advocate for and something that I do on a daily basis um, is ad I want to change the change the realm of, of health literacy. Um, and I think it needs to change because uh, it affects outcomes so much more than more than people realize. When you get a cancer diagnosis, the first thing that you're going to want to do is is research. And there is so much research out there. Um, but it's not, a lot of it is not written for patients. It's written for the medical community. Most um, of it. Yeah. yeah. And it's so hard and it's so frustrating as a patient when you're wanting to advocate for yourself, but you don't have the knowledge to be able to do so because it's not written in a language that you understand. And so having that plain language, a dialogue, whether it's in the office, online, and a patient portal is so, is so important. Um, if you don't understand what you're going through, you're not going to be compliant. Um, I think, I, I think uh, I, an example I could give of that would be um, the way that prescriptions are written. So if you have to take two pills twice a day, a lot of people are not able to understand, are not able to understand that. They think it's, you know, two pills once a day or one pill twice a day. And so and on top of all of the acronyms. And so um, using the, one of the methods that doctors can use is, what, is what's called the teach back method. And so when a doctor tells you, this is how you need to take this medication, at the end of the appointment, the doctor can say, now tell me how you're gonna take that medication. And that's to make sure that they take it correctly, um, which can only make health outcomes better, right? Because if you're taking the medication correctly, um, then you're more likely to get better than if you're taking it incorrectly. And if you don't understand, you might be afraid to tell your doctor, I don't understand, I don't understand this, I don't understand what you're saying to me. And instead, you'll just take it the way you think it needs to be taken, and then you don't get better, and your doctor wonders what is happening. And so, um, I think advocating for plain language, uh, health literacy is my absolute number one priority. Oh, that's amazing. Oh, gosh, I love that. Um, we're going to find a role for you at Cancer You at some point. <laughs> that's one of my goals. <laughs> um, you know, to, to that point, like, it can be even the smallest thing. Like my doctor, my endocrinologist, after my thyroid was burned out, said I couldn't take my birth control pill, which I was on at the time, and my thyroid medication at the same time. They had to be taken 12 hours apart, okay. but never told me that my thyroid pill really needed to be taken in the morning. I had no idea. So for years, I took my thyroid pill in the evening. Uh, and yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's just, I had no idea. Um, I mean, all through my twenties, no clue. Um, until I really got health insurance, got a good endocrinologist who went, uh, no, you need to take that first thing in the morning and here's why. Um, and I think it's also important for patients if they have a reaction to a medication and they stop taking it to say why, you know, it's not because I don't want to listen to my doctor. Or I, it's because I feel like 
this this happened after I took this medication. Right. You know, and, and a lot of times that doesn't come out either. Um, oh, you're just amazing. Oh, so excited. Um, are you ready for the Thriver Rapid Fire? Yes. All right. Okay, here we go. Beach, desert, or mountains? Um, I'm going to choose a beach with mountains in the background. <laughs> So we're going to Malibu is what you're telling me. <laughs> Just describe Malibu perfectly. Um, Beach Boys, Beatles, or Rolling Stones? Oh, Beatles. What is one word that best describes you? Resilient. Love it. Before you die, what is the last song you want to hear? The first thing that came to my mind was Survivor by Dusty Child. <laughs> I like it. I like the irony. I appreciate it. Um, what is the last meal you want to eat? Oh, gosh. Tacos. Oh, funny. Do you like fish tacos? I do. Yeah, me too. Me too. I didn't even know that was a thing until I lived in LA. Um, who is the last person you want to see? My parents. And the last words you will speak? I made it. Of it. Um, and uh, aside from Cancer U, what is one resource that you would recommend for cancer patients and caregivers? Probably the clinical trials website, which is clinicaltrials.gov. Um, there are so many um, different options for treatment, one of them being clinical trials. A lot of people do not know about that. A lot of doctors do not recommend it. Um, and uh, it's something that I work with personally um, in my career. Um, and I will say some of it is not written in the best language, but where it's getting revamped. And so using, using that to your advantage, uh, would probably be the, would be the best way to consider a treatment option and the NCI website, National Cancer Institute, um, which is nci.gov that has a ton of information, not only for providers, but also for patients. And it is written in lay friendly language. Um, they have so much, so much information on different treatments, different types of cancer, a dictionary, a thesaurus where you can look up different terms. Um, it's a great website. Oh, I love both of those. We'll put those in the show notes. And if people want to get in touch with you, how can they get in touch with you? Sure. Um, I am on Twitter at Carly Flumer, so C-A-R-L-Y-F-L-U-M-E-R. -E um, you can also find me on Instagram at that same handle. Um, and if you would like to send me an email, um, I'm at uh, Carly at PowerfulPatients.org. All right. Thank you so much, Carly, for sharing your story. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. If you like our podcast, give us a five-star rating and review and tell your friends about us. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening right now. If you want to share your cancer journey with the world and be a guest on our podcast, go to our website, cancer.university. That's cancer.university. And hit the contact button or click the contact link in the show notes. You've been listening to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. Real people, true stories.